Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the podcast segment of our show that is not broadcast on KALA. Our guest for the 380th show is Dr. Brian Roberts, professor of history at the University of Northern Iowa, who will be talking to us about his book, Black Face Nation, Race, Reform, and Identity in American Popular Music, 1812 to 1925. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. And Ed, I don't know if you joined the Durant band, but you get to start the show off this time. I, I actually wasn't in the band, John, but I could tap my toe with the best of them. Uh, <laughs> Wait, Ed is a xylophone tie master. Oh, yeah, that's, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he is definitely the, the you know the zen of that. Yes. Yeah, they they did not have a washboard tie section, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr. Roberts, you mentioned early early in the show that the book took a long time to write. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that process? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's probably me. Uh, I just kind of, maybe I'm just, I spend too much time working on these things. But it took about uh, 17 years uh, between uh, publication of my first book uh, and then this book. This is my second book um, that's a real, what I would call a real monograph. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it took a long time. And part of it's just because, you know, you pick a, a topic like music and you think, well, th- there's going to be a ton of sources out there. And that's true. But they're not flagged in any type of order. Um, they're not placed in some kind of narrative where it's easy to understand. And then the other thing is, um, you know, I I wanted to write this book um from the standpoint of just kind of where a, a person who's not a, a trained musician could read this and understand it. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff out there on pop music that's from a musicology perspective. And there, it includes a lot of sheet music, and you have to read the music, this kind of thing. And, and, and so what was very difficult about it was uh, trying to write a book where I historicized, I tried to historicize the music rather than just keep it in the in the kind of context of music itself. So that was, I have to admit, that was a, a very difficult struggle. Uh, and it's hard to deal with musical sources. I mean, I'm trained to be a historian and not a musicologist. And so it's very difficult to kind of... Um, be able to deal with music sources to take seriously the music part of that, but also then look at the lyrics, but also the setting, this kind of thing. So there was a there were a lot of music moving parts to um, this type of history. Uh, so yeah, it took a long time to to publish it uh, to to really get it right, uh, and the the process of kind of re- writing and revision was definitely a lot of hard work. (laughs) Okay, Rick, do you have a question? I do, Jay. Uh, Brian, you mentioned in the broadcast version uh, portion of the show the uh, blackface uh, performed by white people was 
kind of an expression of love, uh, getting uh, in touch with their, as you called it, inner dark side. Um, and here recently in the last probably, I don't know, five, six, seven, maybe 10 years, uh, blackface is uh, something that could almost get you disqualified for uh, the Supreme Court, can ruin your political career and and get you banished from uh, certain country clubs. Uh, why now is uh, is it viewed uh, so serially racist? Is, is this a misunderstanding of the blackface genre? Uh, I, you know, I think the thing is, I think that the nation, the United States has really kind of uh, struggled to come to grips with racism as part of its past. And so um, it makes sense to me that we didn't, as a nation, we didn't really deal with um, blackface as a kind of a, a major phenomenon within American culture until just now. I mean, for one thing, I mean, it's just, I, I think I heard now that that um, Aunt Jemima is finally being phased out as an yeah, icon for, for yeah. syrup. Right. And, you know, the question is, uh, this, it's the same question you have for these people where, you know, you find out all of these people have some kind of blackface event in their past. And what you what you realize is just how extensive this is throughout the culture and how popular blackface has been for years. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I I think now we're finally at the point where we're maybe going to address um, some of these issues. I think with blackface, it's going to be a, a tough one because uh, what I think Americans want to do is kind of deal with it as racism, put it in the past and move on. But it's like I say, I don't think it's the same type of racism you would get in hate crime, racism, that kind of thing. It's much more of a kind of a racism of uh, kind of condescending attraction. Uh, that's where you get, you know, the the term uncle and aunt for black people was an, it was a term of affection, but it was a term of affection that was mis- mixed with condescension, condescension and kind of looking down on this person. And so um, I think we're going to struggle. We'll struggle for a while to really kind of put into, put into perspective what was going on with blackface, why we loved it so much as a nation, and, and why it really doesn't fit into, um, like I say, the kind of easy definition of racism as just hatred or dislike or abuse of the other. I mean, it's a type of racism that really, in some ways, elevated black people as people who could express appetites, desires, yearnings. Um, but in, in that kind of elevation, it was all based on stereotype. Uh, and these were qualities that were kind of below the standards of whiteness in America. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think we'll, we're, we're, we'll be dealing with this for quite a while, kind of what did it mean? And, and I, I predict that there'll be a lot more people who we find they have blackface, some kind of blackface event in their past. Okay. Uh, okay, a question I have with this is, 
of course, it's quite obvious. We've been looking at it from the relations with um, white people carrying this out. And, of course, it was they liked it, but it was definitely, without a doubt, insulting as get out. Were there publications? Because, of course, as we're talking about this, there were black newspapers, magazines uh, all throughout the country. Uh, Did you come across any sources that where you have, of course, uh, educated people who happen to be black uh, pointing out that this is incredibly insulting and it's a travesty? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in in the middle decades of the 19th century, even during the time when you get the the first real blackface craze in America, uh, you had um, quite a few black newspapers. Um, one of them was Frederick Douglass's paper, The North Star, um, which then was later uh, it was renamed Frederick Douglass's paper. And then the other one that I talk about in the book is Samuel, Samuel Cornish's paper, uh, The Colored American. And both of those papers actually talked about blackface minstrelsy uh, as something that was demeaning to black people. And what they were trying to do was kind of stress that there was a middle class um, identity for black people. And so there was a lot of talk about, well, what did this mean? Was it, what did it mean musically? And so um, there the stress was on, you, you see, looking at these newspapers, the stress on um, black opera singers, which, you know, we've, I think most Americans would be stunned to know that there were black opera stars in the 1840s and 1850s in America. Um, so you have opera singers, you have um, parlor ballads, you know, there were, um, there's a real stress on kind of creating an alternative identity for African Americans outside of the identity created in the minstrel show. Um, and that effort, I think, went on. I mean, it, it was part of kind of black culture in America for a long time. And I think it succeeded to a certain extent. Uh, but it, I don't think it ever really broke through the dominance of kind of uh, what I would call a minstrel perception of black people. And, and that minstrel perception really comes from the minstrel, the blackface minstrel show. And part of my argument is to just say that, I mean, this is why we have problems with policing in America. You know, going in, uh, it's very hard for, I think, white people to separate um, what they see with black people from the imagery of something like blackface and these kind of dominant images. Okay, um, Brian, I get the... uh the honor of having the last question for this segment. Um, and I'm going to mm-hmm. kind of piggyback on, on the performance end. It seems to me that you have two different things going on here, that you have a, a writing industry as part of this movement um, where people are simply writing but not performing particularly. And then you have a performance industry. And then you probably have folks that are doing both. And so my question mm-hmm. is, was the the... The, the income and the notoriety 
segregated. So, you know, I, what, what's coming in my head is, you know, you have these, these mostly white individuals who are writing these songs and, and maybe generating a great deal of success from doing so. And then you have the minstrel show, which at least in my head is sort of a penny, you know, a, a not much money working class kind of Joe sort of, sort of show that you're going to where, where your, your performers might not be making much more than sort of room and board. Um, is that impression accurate? And does that also have a racist influence? Uh, I think it depended on the, the performers, you know, certain performers, um, made i think quite a bit of money and did pretty well uh you have to remember that uh, in the in the mid-19th century music halls were they were a lot bigger than i think we think of them today so a music hall like uh the bowery theater uh in new york uh or the niblo's garden in new york these places would hold uh between two and two thousand three thousand and five thousand people and so um, the night's proceeds for a minstrel show uh, would be pretty substantial. So minstrel groups like the Virginia Minstrels did pretty well. Uh, Virginia Minstrels were, they were the group of Dan Emmett. Emmett was the guy who wrote the song Dixie. So that, he's most well known for that's probably the most famous blackface song of all time. But uh, in the 1840s, so he wrote that in 1859. Um, and in the 1840s, he was the head of the, the he was the main person at, on, in the Virginia Minstrels. So he was both a writer um, and a performer. Whereas um, Stephen Collins Foster was much more of a kind of, he just wrote songs and sold the sheet music. And I think he probably did pretty well himself, although he later, as I say, kind of moved away from minstrelsy into um, more of mainstream middle-class parlor ballads. Um, so really, I think it, it, it depended on the different types of performers. Um, minstrelsy, blackface became so popular uh, by about the time of the Civil War, that it was being performed everywhere. And so um, there were small venues where people didn't make much money. Um, and then there were much larger stage shows where people did, I think, pretty well. Okay. Well, we would like to thank our guests for this 380th show. Dr. Brian Roberts, professor of history at the University of Northern Iowa, who talked to us about the book Blackface Nation, Race Reform and Identity in American Popular Cult popular music from 1812 to 1825 the history buffs for today's show were rick sweet and ed broders you can listen to roi as it's being broadcast on friday nights at kala hd2 88.5 fm and 106.1 fm in the quad cities at 9 30 p.m you can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on tunein.com Put K-A-L-A H-D-2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put K-A-L-A Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station K-A-L-A, St. Ambrose University.